0: I can't wait to hear from you. Have you been in the mood for a pilgrimage lately? Well, I know I have. And so I am heading to England along with editor Mark Michael, and you are invited to come with us. Join the Living Church in the UK. We'll be across the pond May 24th to June 4th, 2023, to learn, laugh, and worship together in places of deep historical and spiritual significance for the Anglican tradition. We're going to travel to some of England's greatest monuments and coziest nooks. What would England be without cozy nooks? We will hear fine choirs, view gardens in bloom, and explore rare masterpieces of sacred art and architecture, all while following the footsteps of our tradition's greatest saints, writers, royals, and mystics. Registration ends December 1st, and spots are filling up, so don't wait. To learn more or register now, click the link in the show notes today.
1: The movement is not the living church. The movement is Christian unity. The movement is an Anglican communion that could be useful to the broader Christian church. How the church is Mm going to look in 10 years, we have no idea, but Mm -hmm. I do think the Living Church will be there the whole time.
0: The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to The Living Church Podcast. Welcome, listeners, to episode 90 of the Living Church Podcast. Today's episode is bittersweet. When we were recording it, we were saying goodbye, and now we have said goodbye to our executive director of 13 years, Dr. Christopher Wells, the inimitable Christopher Wells. And in today's episode, I sit down with him for a little heart-to-heart, an exit interview, if you will. We reflect together on his time at TLC, his own sense of calling, his story, and what next for him in his new role in London. And how can you have a conversation with Christopher Wells without also talking about Anglican history at some point? I did ask for it. And we do talk about Anglican history and a little about the history of the Living Church as a magazine and a movement about the vocation of Anglicanism, and about how evangelical, Catholic, and ecumenical go together like Stanley Hauerwas, George Lindbeck, and the Second Vatican Council. Now, for those of you who sense some insider baseball up in here, you are absolutely right. And like baseball, you will still enjoy yourself even if you don't know everything that's going on. So grab yourself a hot dog or something and just stick with us. We will be entertaining and edifying as always, but there will definitely be some goodies in here for those interested in the Living Church's history and mission and what further cahoots might look like with, for example, the Anglican Communion Office in London. Speaking of which, Dr. Christopher Wells is the new Director of Unity, Faith, and Order for the Anglican Communion Office he was executive director and publisher of the Living Church Foundation for 13 years. He is affiliate professor of theology at the General Theological Seminary and Neshoda House Theological Seminary, where he teaches courses on Augustine of Hippo, Thomas Aquinas, and Anglican ecclesiology. He has served as theological consultant to the Anglican Roman Catholic Consultation in the U.S., is a prolific writer and editor, as well as a runner and an appreciator of good food. You definitely want to have dinner with Christopher. I also count him as a friend, and like me, I hope you enjoy the conversation.
1: It's so great to be in the hands of the professional, Miss Amber Noel. Hey, 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 hey! <laughs> Here Look we at are, your
0: podcast baby, rocking with the podcast on a Tuesday morning. Actually, it's Wednesday, Christopher. Thank you so much for being on the podcast of the organization of which you are still the executive director for five more days.
1: Thank you. Bless you.
0: You're a little busy these days. you got a few things going on. You're moving. Let's see. What's on I'm your itinerary? i up at
1: TLC after 13 years. After 13 and years. And then I turn wow. around and on the Feast of All Saints, I start my new job at the Anglican Communion Office, November oh my 1st. Oh gosh. Wow. And then I'll move to London with my bride. Your new, brand new bride. Brand new bride in January, second week of January. So yeah. Oh my gosh. And my first meeting for the Anglican Communion Office is actually to go to Nashville and attend an event for the Anglican Center in Rome and a vision for Anglican Roman Catholic unity, but also communion across difference is the name of the event that, plant is organized, Stanley Hauerwas is going to be speaking among others. And it's just, for, to me, it's a perfect example of the continuity of what I've done at the Living Church and what we've worked on.
0: Yeah, I was so, about to say, but that, that, that sounds cool. like a Living Church event, Christopher. And let's see,
1: what is your new title going to be? Director of Unity, Faith, and Order. You know, the, the Anglican Communion Office is a creature of the Anglican Consultative Council, which is one of the instruments of communion. It's distinct from Lambeth Palace and the Archbishop of Canterbury. I think I'm the fourth person to hold this position. It was created by Rowan Williams after the 2008 Lambeth Conference.
0: That's interesting that you are going from a position that has been around since, essentially since 1878, to a position Mm -hmm. that was created just a handful of years ago. So from this kind of venerable editor's role at the Living Church to this brand spanking new practically
1: kind of role true and I think you know, honestly, Amber, I view it historically as almost on an exact parallel with the development of the Anglican Communion. you know if you think of the first Lambeth conference in 1867 and the, and the Living Church is founded in 1878. I mean, you, you could say that the accidental beginning of the Anglican Communion was the founding of the Episcopal Church uh-huh. after the revolution. And then sort, sort of fast forward 20 years or, or less than 20 years, you know, 11 years, and the founders of Living Church have a vision for unity in the Episcopal Church after the divisions of the Civil War, our own Civil War, but absolutely in an ecumenical key and kind of channeling, you know, William Reed Huntington's church idea, which was the big ecumenical idea at the time that would lead to the quadrilateral. And so I, I, the Living Church founders have a kind of ecumenical vision for the Episcopal Church and for American Christianity that's always already thinking about global Anglicanism in the Church of England. And I think at that, at that point, you could argue that the Living Church becomes a champion of the Anglican Communion Project at the beginning, and I think that's a great way of reading our history. And then if you just think of like the history of American Episcopalians influencing the ecumenical movement, leading the ecumenical movement, and being constant partners in the Anglican Communion Project, I think it's a perfect kind of continuity. That title itself of this new role was invented by Rowan. But the actual work we've been doing, they've been doing for a very long time. There's, there's almost always been an ecumenical person at the Anglican Communion Office. The innovation of this job is that it holds together the Anglican ecumenical work with inter-Anglican unity work. And, and I would say that's sort of what we do at The Living Church as well. And it's so fun to think about the last decade and more at The Living Church. I think the thing that, that I'm most proud of that we've done and that's probably most noteworthy is we focused and articulated our mission. I remember very well it was about it was sort of the summer I think after my first year I think it was the summer of 2010 and and the living church had did not have an articulated mission statement or or a vision statement but we had a history with a with a well established identity but I had said in my interview for the job you know I said look you all are catholic anglicans which was which was a phrase that was used in the subtitle of the magazine at that point and in a sort of vision identity document, I guess, that was sort of buried somewhere on the website. And I think the name of it was What is Catholic Anglicanism? And it defined Catholic Anglicanism. And I remember reading that as a doctoral student at, at Notre Dame. And I remember thinking, Well, I agree with this, you know, and it was a sort of it was a it was a sort of Michael Ramsey, Jeffrey Fisher kind of a view of Catholic Anglicanism—that's common—was common in the 20th century, which is sort of like we're servants of a greater unity. Anglicanism is incomplete in itself. We're not trying to be doctrinally innovative in the in the Christian world. And I thought, well, that's that's my view. And then I basically said to them in the interview, "Look, you know, you all are Catholic Anglicans, but you also know how to do a publication. You're printing a magazine. This was the." This was August of 2008. All the other publications had dried up. And even Anglican World, published by the Anglican Communion Office, had been mothballed. I call myself an evangelical Catholic. And a couple of people who were interviewing me from the board said, oh, oh, we are too. We're evangelical okay. Catholics. Because
0: I was going to ask you about that. Because if someone <clears throat> goes to the website and sees we are Catholic Anglicans, some people are going to be yeah. drawn in like a tractor beam, like you were. Right. And other people right. are going to be repelled or confused where we're we're Catholics now. I thought that we were reformed or, you know, whatever, dot, dot, dot. So I was going to ask you when the word evangelical came into the mission statement. So by the way, guys, you guys who are listening, if you didn't know this, we have had our tagline, our mission statement has changed several times over the past 13 years because of the work of pinning down like knowing the mission field that we're engaged in, but pinning down the exact identity and the exact role of the living church in that mission field. And I think also, Christopher, you could probably track your time with the living church with the changing of the tagline. So when did when did the word evangelical come in? And then I wanna throw it hard in reverse and talk about a little bit farther in the your past and how you came to that point but first tell me how did how did evangelical come into play was
1: this the moment that was the moment yeah but but again any historian of the episcopal church who's thought about excuse me ecclesiology or christian unity or you know ecumenism and 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 followed these kinds of discussions in 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 the episcopal church knows that again we come honestly by this kind of a thing going back to again you know the American House of Bishops adopting the quadrilateral in 1886 and founding the faith and order movement. And, and and there were movements in the Episcopal Church throughout the 20th century that talked about evangelical and Catholic together. So it is a sort of venerable idea. I actually learned it from kind of high church Lutherans when mm-hmm. I was at Yale Divinity School. I've had an interesting little playful debate with Bishop Graham Kings for a number of years who's an English Bishop who actually helped me and Craig Uffman think of the name for our blog covenant, which we founded when I was a graduate student at Notre Dame in 2007. And I had the really bad idea of calling covenant conventus, oh, oh, the, Christopher. the Latin, which means to, to convene or come together, which is uh-huh. literally what a covenant is. So I was like, let us go back and retrieve the Latin. And Graham said, Please, no, because then everyone's going to say, get thee to Conventus. (laughs) Get (laughs) thee to a Conventus. So he said, why don't we just call it Covenant? Because the Anglican Covenant had just been looted. And was an idea, it wasn't even a stable text yet in 2007. And and he said, we're going to be talking about the Covenant for the next decade and more. So why not? So currently if you want to read
0: our blog you can go to covenant.livingchurch.org that's covenant.livingchurch.org but if it was conventus it would be conventus.livingchurch.org <laughs> and i can imagine yeah. people typing mm-hmm. it and being like convent us living like why are we yeah. what does it mean to convent Why are you why are you Church conventing us a religious community what did, anyway you know that was part so of your joke a about get thee to a
1: conventus but at covenant which also is part of why they wanted to hire me at the Living Church, I guess, because um, they had gathered I'd started this blog. So I remember at the interview, they were like, we understand that you have started a blog. And the word kind of blog was like still a, a web blog and whatnot. But yeah, basically, my discussion with Graham is always sort of like, should we say evangelical Catholic or Catholic evangelical? I think some people identify themselves as Catholic evangelicals. That's how Graham Identifies himself, and that's because he understands himself to be a classical kind of evangelical Anglican. So he wants to use the noun, I am an evangelical, but he's Catholic because he's kind of cottoned on to the importance of unity, Christian unity, and the visibility. You could say his ecclesiology is Catholic, mm-hmm. but he's not like a full on doctrinal Catholic, mm-hmm. perhaps. I don't mean that speak for Graham, but he's just, he's a public person. But I think a number of people involved with the Living Church. Bishop of Dallas, maybe George Sumner. I could think of lots of others, people on our foundation, Bishop Wandera, maybe others who would say, I'm an evangelical, mm-hmm. um, but they like the, the emphasis on Christian unity and visibility and these kinds of things. And for them, I think ecumenical and Catholic are almost synonyms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, makes a lot of sense. And for an evangelical Catholic, though, I think they, they, they're comfortable calling themselves Catholics.
0: Yeah. I mean, they're more, they tend to be like more into purgatory and
1: veneration of
0: the Blessed Virgin and the Pope. Or Mary or
1: the Eucharist or, Uh you know, it's sort of like, you know, someone will come along and say, well, we don't believe in transubstantiation and the Catholics sort of eyes will light up and sort of say, or do we? Right. So they're interested in Catholic doctrine more, but And then there's always a question among Catholic Anglicans, you know, well, what's our view of Rome and so forth. There is a long history at the Living Church of always having the discipline of saying Roman Catholicism because we kind of don't think that they're the only Catholics. I think at some point that becomes annoying if you're talking to your Roman Catholic colleagues. Most Roman Catholic ecumenists will say Roman Catholic, Mm -hmm. and you can find that in certain texts but they also just as a matter of habit day by day do call themselves catholics and we as a matter of habit generally don't we call ourselves anglican or episcopalian or whatever so yeah but these things are interesting but all of this goes to the instability in a sense of of anglican identity and episcopal identity it's kind of what is quick what is an episcopalian what is an anglican and and i think one of the gifts of the living church has always been to be in the mix of that discussion And if you look at the history of our magazine, we're always talking about these kinds of questions. And yes, they can become in-house and it can feel navel gazing. And then it's worse sort of conservative moments. It's like, does the living church care about anything other than you know these identity questions? And like they're always talking about bishops and the Eucharist and et cetera, et cetera. What about mission? What about the poor? Yeah. But the truth is that if you look at our long history, I think we've done a really good job of balancing those kinds of things. But, but it's also, we are ecumenical within ourselves in that, again, I think at least since the 19th century, Anglicans intentionally started understanding that there are different parties or theological traditions or schools within Anglicanism that have fundamental doctrinal disagreements with one another, but that we're still going to try to be a church or a communion together. So the evangelical and Catholic parties in the 19th century arguing about the Eucharist and the historic episcopate and baptismal regeneration and so forth. Those are kind of important doctrinal questions. You know, when we're talking to our traditional Roman Catholic friends, they're kind of like, how do you, you know, what's the Anglican teaching on the Eucharist? And, and we have to sort of say, well, there are a few different traditions and views. And then they kind of shake their heads and say, well, that's totally incoherent. You all know what you believe. <laughs> but, the, but then we say, actually we're sort of trying to run a workshop and an experiment here in Christian unity. And we're trying to be cooperative and work together and learn together, even across these doctrinal differences, which, you know, works until as long as it works. And then Mm -hmm. the condition is you, you need to love one another and meet together and go to meetings together and try to actually cooperate. And that, that continues to be the cutting edge challenge for Anglicans to actually try to do that successfully.
0: So let's, let's go back to your story, Christopher. I know that when you were in graduate school, ecumenism was really on your heart. Something happened at some point along your journey. Can you, can you give us just a nutshell kind of bio, a sense of what your journey was into this ministry, into this call?
1: You know, sometimes I talk to Episcopalians who think that when I was at the University of Notre Dame, that it was some kind of like hotbed of ecumenical and ecclesiological discourse. It really wasn't. I came to Notre Dame as, a, as an ecumenist. I did really get inspired by George Lindbeck and his tradition of doing ecumenical work at Yale and he taught there for 40 years, and Yale in its heyday, Day was an ecumenical hotbed, you know? And a number of our friends and teachers were formed there at that time, including Ephraim Radner and George Sumner and Joe Mangina and others. But the truth is, I mean, my dad was, a, was an ecumenist at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He was an Episcopalian, had been a former Episcopalian, and he really loved reconciliation work, and he was a historian, but he wrote. my dad wrote five books about Protestant and Catholic reconciliation in Northern Ireland. And he kind of mediated to me, I think, an interest in, in these kinds of questions. Spent a year of high school in London, which was very formative. I, so then I, I did a gap year after college and I did city year in, in Boston and worked in the inner city. Mm-hmm. And I got kind of radicalized in some ways, but I, I really fell in love with kind of working with the poor and so forth.
0: And you let your hair grow, right? I mean, you had like a hobbit I had
1: long curly mop. hair. I had a, yeah. a fro. <laughs> yeah. I, and I went to St. Olaf College thinking I'm going to be a community organizer. That was what I wanted to do after City Year. And then basically, I sort of had a you know encounter with the history of western christian thought and i did a great books course while i was also doing like racial studies and radical like american studies and all that i was also doing great books it kind of became a big mashup and i fell in love with theology and god basically had a bit of an adult conversion we did a reconversion after not going to church for a couple of years and i started to imagine a vocation you know as a teacher and as a theologian but i still really had this community organizing heart and then basically I discovered ecclesiology. You know, Stanley Hauerwas really changed my life because I, I I read Hauerwas as a junior in college. I didn't know and that. Yeah. I, I didn't kept know you had a Hauerwas time. Duke to study with Hauerwas, but, but I chose Yale. We just missed because each other,
0: Christopher, by 15 <laughs> years. Yale Divinity
1: School, I, I visited Duke and Hauerwas, and I'd written my senior thesis on Hauerwas, actually, at college. And and I really was an ecumenist by that point, you know, and uh, I just thought ec- when I discovered ecumenical theology, it's kind of like the community organizers subfield of theology. You know, the whole idea of it's like we're better together. Come on, y'all. Let's. I'm always trying to get the band together. Mm-hmm. And so when I went to Yale Divinity School, I was already kind of a, a, an ecumenist, you know, but then I found George Lindbeck. He was kind of stumbling around shuffling around the campus kind of in his retirement and we became friends and I organized his papers for the Yale Divinity School library and so forth but you know he was an official observer at the Second Vatican Council for the Lutheran World Federation and but then my real my mentor at Yale Divinity School I'm going to write about this in my last column which I haven't finished yet but I don't plan on saying her name there but I'll say it's Anna Williams and she taught at Yale Divinity School for three years, the same three years I was there. And she was a, a, an Anglo-Catholic uh, laywoman and very, very smart. She was George Lindbeck's last doctoral student. And she taught us Aquinas. She taught us Augustine at, at Yale. She also taught a course on Anglicanism, history of Anglican theology. Hmm. And she picked up Lindbeck's old class on ecumenism. And then she became my godmother and prepared me for oh confirmation and. In the Episcopal Church. So I was confirmed in, in the Diocese of Connecticut, you know, in the year 2000. And then she really packed me off to Notre Dame along with my four best Roman Catholic friends from Yale. We all went to Notre Dame. Anna was like, you should go to Notre Dame and study historical theology. Said, okay. So I arrived at, in South Bend really as a, as a sort of Catholic Anglican, but with the kind of evangelical background, you know, that I'd gotten from my parents and so forth. That That's the, the story in a nutshell.
0: So you then came on with The Living Church. What were you looking for? Were you in between jobs? Were you unhappy with the yeah. one you had at the time? Were you living with I was your finishing
1: parents? finishing up my PhD. <laughs> I was living in South Bend and finishing up my doctoral dissertation, which was about half written, and starting to apply for academic jobs. And there weren't a lot of academic jobs, you know. And basically, I got involved in church politics because I like politics and I like people. And so I, I, you know, I started going, I went to general convention as a lay deputy from northern Indiana in 2006. And I started writing little like op-ed pieces for the living church as a doctoral student. And I actually was committed to being a missionary for the Episcopal Church for one year. I was going to be a, a volunteer for mission and go to South Africa, which I did do. And I taught at the seminary down there in Grahamstown. But basically, Bishop Little of Northern Indiana, my bishop, was on the Living Church Foundation. And he gave them my name. They were looking for a new executive editor. And he gave them my name. And they called me up. And they, the president of the board, I remember he called me up. It was a Sunday afternoon. And he said, have you ever thought about being the editor of the Living Church? And I was like, nope. I sure haven't. And he said, well, you know, would you think about it? You know, and he sent me the job description and so forth. And basically, long and the short of it is I was pretty sure I didn't want the job, Amber. I was finishing up my dissertation, getting ready to go to South Africa and so forth. I actually turned them down for the interview. But Kiri Boren-Heddington told me to go to the interview. She said, give the Holy Spirit a chance. It does not surprise me at all. She About was already her. a dear friend of mine in Dallas. And God bless And her. Matthew Olver, I knew, and there was already kind of a, a, a center of friends, friends and community in Dallas I was very close with. Yeah, so I went. And because I because I didn't want the job, Amber, I just I cast a vision that really didn't have a lot to do with the job description. And I said, you know, I think you all should aim at the whole Anglican communion and tell a positive story. And you should organize conferences and publish books and and just serve you know build up the whole Anglican Communion in a Catholic and an evangelical key and be a teacher and I realized I'd kind of pitched my own vocation to them hmm. so that's when they created the job executive director but then I took up the the editor title because I decided that I thought we needed to to refashion the magazine pretty significantly mm-hmm. but I came in with a real mandate for change because the living church was Sort of tanking at that point in terms of circulation and financially. Yeah, a long venerable history, and my predecessor David Kalvitch had done a wonderful job, you know, professionalizing the magazine. He was a wonderful journalist and a hardworking guy. He was there for eighteen years, but I think they just sensed that it was time for a refresh and the vision that i pitched they kind of had a heart for. and so with that mandate to change we then we just made pretty rapid changes for the first couple of years.
0: So how would you characterize the changes in the living church's ministry not just in the first couple of years but over the past 12 or 13 years?
1: I'm just amazed. I mean when you look at the living church in the 1920s and 30s it was a it was a weekly magazine 32 pages long. Massive pages with a font size of like 8.
0: Wasn't the staff comprised of there was like a whole typing pool. There were like yeah. there were like a yeah. dozen women working in different like clerical positions, typists.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And this is before email, I mean before desktop publishing. This is the Morehouse era. So it's it's when the Morehouse Publishing Company in Milwaukee was sort of underwriting the publishing of Women Church, which they did for 52 years. mm mm-hmm. Mhm from 1900 to 1952. And F.C. Morehouse was a very prominent Episcopal layman. He went to the first faith and order meeting in Lausanne in 1927, representing the Episcopal Church. Clifford Morehouse later, you know, was like a vestryman at Trinity Wall Street and so forth. These guys were very well connected, very loyal to the Episcopal Church. The presiding bishop sat ex officio on the foundation for most of those years. <clears throat> but they had a very clear kind of Anglo Catholic identity, but it was a very kind of winsome mainstream kind of Anglo Catholicism. But yeah, they they published a thirty-two page magazine, eight point font, every week. And you look at those articles and you know they're like two thousand words or twenty five hundred words, like the Bishop of Fond du Lac reflects on the Eucharist, part one, you know, and like the next week will be part two. So this is I don't Episcopalians just used to really enjoys sitting around reading a church magazine every week instead of watching Netflix, you know? Mm. But so my thought has just been, was, you know, Episcopalians are very highly educated, secularly, they're smart, and they deserve a substantial, serious theological magazine. And the Living Church should also keep doing news, independent news and journalism, central to our identity. And David Calvage had really built that up and professionalized the Living Church. And I just said, you know, why don't we double down on a kind of theological commitment as well and a pedagogical commitment? And so there was a feeling that that was good. And then my my mission at that point was basically to try to drive the Living Church magazine right back into the heart of the Episcopal Church and make sure we were meeting the needs of the Episcopal Church and the Anglican communion, which is to say talking to people and engaging them and listening to them.
0: Had the magazine or the, the ministry or the mission gotten stuck? In a particular place at a particular point, was there a way to describe that without throwing shade?
1: Essentially, I do think it was a stressful time from sort of two thousand three to two thousand nine, and it was a kind of slow motion train wreck in the Anglican Communion and in the Episcopal Church, <clears throat> and the Living Church rightly covered all of that mm-hmm. you know, in the news and editorialized about it. But I, I think at some point, you know, if if you're trying to be a Christian magazine. That's Catholic and also evangelical. You need to talk about the whole Christian faith. You need to talk about the Christian life, and there has to be a spirit of joy you know pervading the thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I don't think that that was missing or anything before I came, but I do think it got a little stuck in some of the arguments and things. I, I let my subscription lapse. When they called me up, I wasn't a subscriber. And, you know, David Calvert, to his credit, the, the Living Church had a tradition of if you laughed, they would send you a card and say, is there a reason you didn't resubscribe and you have any feedback for us? Wow, that's amazing. And I had written him a letter. This is before they even, call, I didn't even know the job was on the horizon. <clears throat> I wrote him a little letter saying, I don't know, I think the Living Church should be a little less political and a little more theological, but I love you guys and I know you're really, you know, you're a traditional institution and I'm rooting for you. And he wrote me back and said, I agree with you. Hmm. So, you know, I think there was a sense of that it was, it was a fitting idea. And also two editors back had been, been Boone Porter, mm-hmm. who was a scholar and had been one of the architects of the 79 prayer book. Yeah. And, and really beloved in the Episcopal Church. And so I think they thought, yeah, you know, there's a tradition of having, you know, a kind of scholar, theologian, editor. But meeting the needs of, of the Episcopal Church for me meant not being afraid of making friends, you know, across the aisle. I just wanted to basically headhunt all the smart people in the Episcopal Church and have them write for us. By smart, I mean people who enjoy writing and who are good teachers and who are thoughtful, irrespective of party affiliation. And then as as a theologian, I really wanted to build up close ties to the seminaries. So I made it a priority to visit all the seminaries. And I already had friends you know, on most of the faculties, but I made friends with all the deans. And then I basically started recruiting faculty members from all of our seminaries to write regularly for the Living Church, because I wanted our kind of intellectual stock to go up. One of the first people who noticed what I was doing was Ian Markham, the Dean of Virginia. I think it was like, I'd, I'd edited like four issues of the Living Church, and Edward Skillebeeks died. The great Roman Catholic theologian who's kind of a liberal, but also like one of the fathers of Vatican II. And I had one of my Roman Catholic friends, Kristen Kohlberg, write a piece for the Living Church about Edward Skillebeeks. And he uh, and Markham called me up on the phone and he said, great piece on Skillebeeks, and I see what you're doing. I see that you're making the Living Church more theological, and I fully support you and count me as a colleague. And then Ian Markham has like had our back over and over and over and over. He serves on the Living Church Foundation now. But for the Living Church to build a close relationship with Virginia Seminary was a little countercultural in many people's minds. But I loved it, and Ian's had a similar heart for that kind of thing.
0: Hey, guys, we've got a new spin on a resource you've heard about before. The Living Word Plus is a weekly sermon prep tool for liturgical preachers to enrich your time, to save you time, and it now comes with an annual subscription option. You asked for it, now we have it. The Living Word is endorsed by the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, and it is used by a variety of folks in the Anglican family, as well as others who use the revised common lectionary, Catholic and Protestant alike. Really neat tool, ecumenical, subscribe, click, One and done for the whole year. It saves you over 15% a year on the normal price, and it's easier to expense to your discretionary fund. And now through December 1st, take an additional 15% off. That is 30% off total. Click the link in the show notes, and the extra 15% expires December 1st. So hurry on up and take advantage of this deal. So going back to the theological roots, making friends gathering fresh people, does this amount to what you call the movement? These are some of the changes that you described. But when you talk about the Living Church, you talk about it as, and in fact, in a goodbye speech to you a few days ago, Bishop John Bauer Schmidt said that the Living Church is now a movement that happens to publish a magazine. Um, mm-hmm. A little tongue-in-cheek because the magazine is still really good. But I think Amen. that I think that essentially he hit the nail on the head. So, is this what what you're describing when you say the movement? Is the gathering of people going
1: back to theological roots
0: and making friends?
1: Yeah, and thank you. look, i'm I'm wary of, you know, self-aggrandizing institutions that refer to themselves as movements. <laughs> and you know, I've noticed like everybody <laughs> lately is sort of like, "Here's a movement. Here's another movement. But look. This might seem very extremely high-minded, but it is the vision that I've had, and that I think we've had, is we're joining the ecumenical movement, and we're encouraging Christian unity. Like, we're very serious about that mission. You know, when I said to the Living Church at the interview, I said, this is the moment of Catholic Anglicanism. The reason I said that is Rowan Williams had just published a pastoral letter. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, throwing his weight behind support of the Anglican Covenant, And he said, basically, this is the Catholic moment of Anglicanism. He said, we need to develop our structures and our ecclesiology in a Catholic direction. I said, this is what the living church says it's all about. So this is your moment. The movement is not the living church. The movement is Christian unity. The movement is an Anglican communion that could be useful to the broader Christian church. And I do think in our time of crisis, in the Anglican communion in the last 20 or so years, it's been a time of enormously fruitful and interesting ecclesiological discussion. Yeah. And that's how I read the Windsor Report the day it came out in 2004, because it basically prescinded from discussion of questions of sexuality. It said we have a teaching about this, actually. But we want to take this opportunity to talk about our ecclesiology. And so I think the principle from the very beginning was don't let a good crisis go to waste. And and a humanist who'd been following this for a long time already knew that the Anglican communion needed to develop to develop its structures and so forth. But yeah, at the then you kind of move down to the ground grassroots level, and like, how's reconciliation and communion and conversation going in the Episcopal Church? Well, there's a lot of work to be done. What about Christian unity in America? Lots of work to be done. Mm-hmm. And so this was the sort of vision. So I think that's the, the just to, to bring some movement energy mm-hmm. is to say the main thing in the morning is not actually just to run a good business or to publish a magazine or to balance the books or to be a publishing house. Because the question is, it's a Christian ministry. So what's the, what's the goal? and And so I do think the idea of movement is useful there, but not, that it's like a living church movement. Mm -hmm. Just to add
0: a side note to that, Christopher, from my perspective, the work that I've done with the living church over the past five or going on five years is that I've also seen attached to this ecumenical vocation, this gathering vocation, I've also Mm -hmm. seen the living church as a ministry to ministers, as a service to Mm -hmm. people who are servants. And so I've never thought about this before, really, although I've always known those two pieces were in were part of the Living Church's ministry, but I've never thought of how they're related necessarily. So that's something I'd like to think more about is how the work of ecumenism is linked to the support and the love and the upbuilding of ministers themselves, yes, pastors, absolutely. bishops, lay leaders. So thanks for that, helping build absolutely. that connection for me. I do want to also ask you about challenging times that you've had. What are a couple of the biggest challenges that you have faced as the editor and executive director of The Living Church or things that you would change if you could go back in time?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't make, I I don't have too many regrets. It's been an amazing adventure. I've loved every second of it, really, even the hardest parts. I mean, this isn't very interesting, except maybe I can say it as an encouragement to others the hardest part you know has been the financial worry and when i first came to tlc there was lots of financial worry but we, you know some people might think we're like endowed to the hilt by like old conservative money or something like that and that's just absolutely not true we never had an endowment we did have some reserve funds that came from some bequest years before i came but even that was never very big and then it it had really been used you know, for operating expenses. So we've always kind of been on the ropes, which, and I've talked to some successful business people who have declined to give me very large pledges into our endowment because they've said, you all are scrappy and hungry and that's how you should be. And I don't want you to become fat and lazy. So that's why I'm not giving you a million dollars. But, but the truth is, we have been scrappy and hungry. We have had to work hard. I enjoy raising money because I enjoy talking to people and I enjoy talking about the mission. And it's invigorating. But it wasn't you know, the reason I went and got a PhD. And I, I, I think like a lot of people, I put off, I put off the raising of the money you know, as long as I could just because you think, like, well, I don't really want to do that. But then you learn you have to do it and it, and, and it becomes enjoyable. So this is the encouragement. Is the way we've survived to a significant extent is I've just forced myself to raise money and spend a lot of time doing it. And I think it's about 40% of our annual budget now, between 30 and 40% is contribution income. And that was just simply a question of showing up to do what needed to be done in order for the ministry to survive.
0: Most of that contribution income comes from partners. So a partner is a parish a diocese or even a fellow nonprofit who we receive a certain level of money from every year and then you can be an associate you can be a guarantor you can be a sponsor and then we just continue in that friendship they've become significant friendships and I've really enjoyed as someone who's done a lot of organizing with the partner program I've really enjoyed over the years getting to know these communities. Uh, and then we do a partner spotlight every year in the magazine, which I, I know if you're listening that many of you've probably seen and read. But just FYI, if anyone's listening and you're a bishop, you're a pastor, you're on the vestry somewhere, you head up a nonprofit, consider getting in touch. You know, contact uh, Mark Michael, mmichael at livingchurch.org. Or you can contact me, Amber Noel, at livingchurch.org, and we can have a conversation about what partnership might look like for you.
1: Look, it, it goes back to people and relationships, the very nature of the church as communion in Jesus, who calls us friends, and we are brothers and sisters in Him. And so that is the work of the Living Church. And I would say at its best, the magazine as well, that this is why the Living Church magazine is a treasure to the Episcopal Church and in the Anglican Communion, is it tells stories. Um, John Schussler has always had a heart for this. He's been, he, he, he onboarded me. He's the our Living managing church. editor right now. John is not an Episcopalian. He's not an Anglican. He's an evangelical Christian, but he has poured his heart into the Episcopal church and into relationships in a kind of exemplary ecumenical way. And he loves talking on the phone. He spent decades talking to Episcopal leaders on the phone, getting to know them, building the relationships. He loves it. And he does it as a Christian. And I realized that's a big part of the vocation of the living church. It's telling stories, especially of parishes. And yes, encouraging clergy and lay leaders at, at the parish level. It's a ministry of friendship and encouragement. And that's that's how fundraising works as well. So Living Church needs to keep at that. And anyone else who finds themselves raising money, including ministers, rectors, pastors of congregations that are in decline, they're worried about making the budget and things, you have to go make friends with your parishioners and ask them for support. You, you have to be direct and you have to pluck up the courage. Because because like hiding out and being introverted isn't going to pay the bills. But it also doesn't actually build the, the, the gospel. And it ends up, again, it converges with evangelism.
0: That's true. I don't think I told you this, Christopher. I was at a parish in Marietta, Georgia. I was in their office and the the church organist walks in. He finds out I work for the Living Church and he says, oh, can you tell John Schusler that I said hi? <laughs> because, Isn't that great? Because John runs the the Episcopal Musicians Handbook program. And so he knows like, you know, 52% of all Episcopal organists in the world or something like that. But yeah, it is That's a beautiful, it is a beautiful thing. And you just, you get this real sense of the family of God, really. And it's, it's beautiful yep. and very rewarding. Um, the future of your relationship with the Living Church, prayers, mm-hmm. partnership, how will this continue for you as you
1: move on? Prayers, partnership, yes. What the Living Church is doing is is unique in the Anglican communion, also because we have internationalized our ministry. We changed the bylaws, I think after I was at the Living Church for a year, so that the Living Church Foundation could elect international Anglicans onto the board. It does say members of churches in full communion with the See of Canterbury, which follows the 1930 definition of the Anglican communion. And so internationalizing our leadership was a key move 12 years ago. And then increasingly internationalizing our writers, internationalizing Covenant. We have, we have international correspondence writing for the Living Church magazine. So we've been in a mode of encouragement of the communion, but there's so much more potential. And so, again, I think this was part of the appeal that I brought when I interviewed for this new job, at the Anglican Communion Office is a network and an organization. I will be advising them in part on kind of how to handle North American Anglicanism, both Episcopal and Canadian and and all some of the political pitfalls. Americans are wonderful and Americans are a handful and Americans are just, you know, how do you corral the gift of America? If only we had bigger personalities. So institutional resources in the United States, universities, seminaries, libraries, scholarships, we we have been given these by God and we have to share them with our global family. And so part of my job in my new job is to continue corralling all of that. And the Living Church will be a constant partner, I think. I'll reach out to TLC. You and I have talked about Living Church Institute conferences Mm -hmm. that could be maybe in partnership with the Anglican Communion Office. Mm -hmm. I think the ACO is open to this kind of thing. The Living Church is independent, of course. The Anglican Communion Office is not independent. It works for the ACC and works for for the Communion. But I still think there's room there for creative stuff. I do serve on the Living Church Foundation still. So, but, you know, that means I go to the annual meeting once a year, and I may not even be able to make that in person. I'll still be working with the Communion Partners, which is a really important, you know, group of Episcopalians and and Anglicans in Canada who especially want to kind of support the Anglican Communion. And the Living Church is distinct from the Communion Partners, but has been a close partner with the Communion Partners. And I'll keep writing for Covenant, our blog. I will continue working. I think, at the very least, in a sort of pro bono way, uh, with you all, and just as a cheerleader and a friend. Good. And when the next executive director is hired, then I think we'll we'll probably hammer it out a little bit more too. I want to make sure that I stay, uh, and don't get under the feet of right. him or he, him or her. So we've we've cooked up the title. What is it, editor at large? Yes,
0: which makes it sound as if you've escaped
1: from the zoo. <laughs> editor at large. Catch him, Um, but but you know it. I'm not on the payroll. I don't really have any official role at the moment. But I think we should ask our listeners to pray for the living church in this time of transition. It's an exciting time. We have a wonderful board and foundation, and Mark Michael, who's the interim executive director, is going to do a great job. He's been the editor of the magazine, but he really does so much more. He's an incredible kind of manager and organizer of. Living Church's ministry. So we've really got the wind at our backs. We are actually in the black at the moment. We are working on an endowment campaign, which is which is gaining steam. So there's just a lot to look forward to. I just think the next 10 years will be interesting. So how, how the church is mm-hmm. going to look in 10 years, we have no idea. But mm-hmm. I do think the Living Church will be there the whole time mm. as a, as an encourager.
0: I want to second your emotion that people will will be praying for us and yeah. that this is and that this is an important thing. So, I'm glad that y'all are listening to the podcast. If you give to the podcast regularly, please do that. Please donate to the Living Church, but I mean, also please pray for us. Your prayers hold a lot of capital for us. So, thank you so much for yeah. that. And I also want to say that to illustrate what you've described, Christopher, next spring and summer is just a perfect illustration of this continued partnership because we're taking a group of pilgrims on a pilgrimage to England in late May, first week of June, and you're going to be over there when we're there. We hope to run into you and you know, get up. And I
1: might actually join you as pilgrims. Oh, you? Oh, pilgrimage. really? Oh, wonderful. I really want want to do that. Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, then a few days after that, we're heading straight from London to Kenya, and then there's going to be a conference in Kenya hosted by our friends there, Esther Mambo. And Joseph Wandera, and
1: Paul's Lemuru. yeah, Saint
0: Paul's University in Lamuru. But I, <laughs> I do also, I do also want to tell a little story that's I think illustrative of, in some ways, my experience with Christopher, working with him, and also his ethos, the ethos that he brings wherever he is of of fellowship and friendship and. Catholicism. And this was Christopher when we were driving the moving van from Milwaukee down to Dallas, which was full of books from this from the Milwaukee office and supplies. And there was a Catholic bishop who died, and you inherited a bunch of his books. And now there's this library in Dallas. And the drive took two days. <clears throat> so the second day, it's early in the morning— I'm, I'm not the kind of person, let's say, who bounces out of bed. You know, I'm not like the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed kind of person. Let's say more like quietly contemplative and hoping no one talks to me first thing in the morning. So I jump in the moving van and Christopher's like, he's all coffeeed up and he's ready to go. And, and I'm like thinking, okay, I can lean against the window and get a little nap. And Christopher, you know, puts the truck in gear and he goes, hey, sister would you say the rosary with me? And I was like, oh, God. so early. And before it's like, before I could like protest, Christopher's in the driver's seat, getting on the highway going, Hail Mary, full of grace. The with you. And then he just pauses until I, and I'm like, this was the grumpiest rosary I've ever said in my life. So I, I just wanted that. to thank you for that memory. I always laugh when I, think about that.
1: Well, Amber, bless you in your ministry. This podcast is a great gift to the Anglican world. And I know we have other Christian friends who listen to it as well. And I think you're just, you're so gifted at this. I'm so glad, well, you do so much for the living church and we hired you on other grounds. And then in the middle of the pandemic, it was Mark Michael who said, why don't we launch a podcast? Which I was like, that's a terrible idea because we have a million other things going on. He did say, Why don't you host it, Christopher? And I said, I have a better idea. How about if Amber hosts it? And of course, I mean, what a gift and what a fruitful ministry. And thank you for everything you're doing for us and many blessings on you in the years ahead. And the Living Church is very blessed to have you.
0: Thank you, Christopher. On you as well. You really are a brother in Christ and a friend. And you've been a you've been a friend on the clock and off the clock as well. We we shared a few years in Dallas together, which were very sweet. A few pool parties, mm-hmm. etc. And I bless you and I'm grateful for you, for your presence, for your work, and I'm so excited to see what you'll do with in the ACO and what the ACO will do with you. I've been talking today with Dr. Christopher Wells, who has been the Executive Director of The Living Church for 13 years, Christopher? Yes, ma'am. 13 years and is moving on and he will be Very much missed, but not really because he'll still be around. Christopher, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today.
1: Thank you, Amber.
0: Thanks for tuning in once again to The Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. We'll be so happy to have you back in two weeks to join us for a conversation with author and philosopher James K.A. Smith about his new book, How to Inhabit Time. It's a perfect listen for the start of Advent and a great book to read during Advent, by the way. Feel free to get a head start on how to inhabit time and then tune back in for my chat with him in two weeks. It was one of my favorite conversations of 2022. Until then, I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been great to be with you. Peace.